Some of you may have figured out we're not home yet. We're only halfway there. Mother's intercepted a transmission of unknown origin. You got us up to check it out. Human. Unknown. I don't think it's attached itself to him. We have to get him to the infirmary right away. What the hell is that? Oh, we gotta get it off him. He's got a wonderful defense mechanism. You don't dare kill it. gotta be a way of killing it. Sorry. You still don't understand what you're dealing with, do you? Perfect. Well done. Landed on the Substance, a podcast aimed at being biblical, thoughtful, and human. Join us here every other week as we engage the culture without the culture war. I'm your host, Philip Marinello, saying, Hope you guys had a nice spooky season. Um, it's been a really fun time here, and we thought we would close off with one more uh, spooky season substantive cinema with one of the all time greats. Um, I don't know how many of you have seen Alien before or how many this is new or you're just listening without having seen it, but this is an incredible one. This was actually, I mean, I watched Alien way before I was into horror films proper, but but this one had been on our list for a while and I'm very excited to have finally got here. Um, and part of the reason I'm so excited is because of our guest today. Uh, I recorded here with Sarah Welch Larson. Sarah has uh, been a longtime co-host of the former podcast, which is now a Substack, Seeing and Believing. Listeners of that show may remember we had Kevin McLenathan on uh, last year for Noir-vember, where we covered Double Indemnity. But yeah, Sarah has been a longtime film critic, both with podcasts and her writing. We get into that as well. And not only did Sarah write a book on alien she wrote a book on the whole alien franchise so all six films currently and we do get into that very briefly on this but if you're a supporter of the substance that episode will be a supporter exclusive here in probably about a week or so so if you're a supporter of the patreon um, you can look for a full probably like 35 40 minute conversation with sarah and i on her book Becoming Alien, which again covers the whole Alien franchise. That was a fascinating conversation. I don't know by the time this airs if I will have seen uh, Alien Covenant, but she sold me on it pretty hard in that conversation. So 
that was very exciting. But if you're new to the substance here, it's not just a movie show. Every other week, we uh, invite a interesting, thoughtful, uh, talented guest on, and we cover something related to faith, culture, and the arts. Previous guests include folks like Josh Larson of Film Spotting, Alyssa Wilkinson, Tyler Huckabee, uh, the previously mentioned Kevin McLenathan, and our friends Slim and Mitchell over at Letterboxd. Um, Editor Dave may jump in here for a second and explain it further, but I do believe there was a little bit of a technical glitch on this one. Doesn't usually happen, but it feels like that was just a very challenging day, and I don't know what happened. But the recording didn't get stopped, but somehow on our end, we we were still running the session, but it paused and we had about, I think, 10 or so minutes of conversation that everything was up and running. It was just instead of the session being stopped, it was actually paused and not recording. So there may be a little bit of a gap in here. Just want to give you guys a heads up on that. As well as um, if you are into Alien, you like Sarah's work, and you want to get a shot at winning her book, um, keep an eye on the socials. I believe that we will be giving away one or two of those as well. So without further ado, here is my conversation on the original Alien with Sarah Welch Larson. Sarah Welch Larson, welcome to The Substance. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like it's a kind of been a long time coming in a way. I feel like I started talking to you maybe a year or so ago after we had Josh on because he was in the process of writing his book for the Real Spirituality series, which was your book the first or the second one? In that Mine series? was the third. I think there was a, a book third? about okay. Michael Mann's uh, movies and Ooh. theology that was in there. And then there were one or two others. So I'm pretty sure mine was the third. And then I know... Josh Larson's no relation, by the way. Uh, we did get asked <laughs> that occasionally. I'm, you're both Chicago. You're both film people. Yeah, I looked it up and I was like, it's spelled differently, and she's married. So yep, and even not if it was, it would him. be yeah, yeah. Although my husband's name is also Josh, just to make things even That's more confusing. Hilarious. <laughs> yeah. So yep, um, but yeah, no, both in the same series, and I'm pretty sure. Yeah, Josh actually endorsed my book for the for the Real Spirituality series yeah, as well. Yeah, I saw so. that. I didn't know there was a Michael Mann one. I'm a huge Michael Mann fan, and I don't think I'd seen that. I only I forgot even what it was, but it was a little bit more yours and Josh's were seemed a little bit more film based, and the other one was a little bit more seemed slightly more theology, but also still in the film world. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure which one it was, but I yeah. gotta track down that Michael Mann one. There's also one, um, and it was the one that I think sold me on the series that's about um, Andre Tarkovsky's movies, specifically Stalker, I believe. Um, it's uh, it's called Perfect in Weakness, Faith in Tarkovsky's Stalker by Colin Haber Percy. And it came out in April of 2019, so shortly before my own book. But it's in the same Real Spirituality series, and it's definitely well worth it. Okay, so long intro. All of that to <laughs> yeah. say, welcome. Um, I, I will say, before we get to it, I I really enjoyed episode 400. The Not the exactly the farewell, but like the transition of seeing and believing. You want to Thank kind of you. briefly tell the folks who may or may not be aware kind of about the the transition there that you guys went through recently? Yeah. So um, Kevin and I recently switched over doing the Seeing and Believing podcast. Over Kevin McLenathan, former yes. guest who uh, 
what did he last year? I think he did November with us. Yeah. Double indemnity, right? Yep. Yeah. Great movie. Um, great pick. Yeah. Kevin and I, um, uh, we're in the process of transitioning over the podcast to a newsletter, um, which is also called Seeing and Believing. So you can find us at seeingandbelieving.substack.com. And um, as a way to sort of wrap things up in audio format, we decided to talk through our collective ethos of spiritual film criticism and what it means to be a Christian critic, although I think we both kind of chafe at that kind of language a little bit. Um, It was a really good conversation because it's something that we have been sort of obliquely circling around just as we've been reviewing movies for the past two or so years together. But it was nice to just sit down and say all of that stuff explicitly. And then after that, we also um, went through some of the movies that have just been sticking with us recently. Not the movies that made us critics, not the movies that we think of as being the most spiritual movies or whatever, but the movies that we just can't let go of right now at this moment in time. And that turned into a really good conversation too, and gave me a couple of films to add to my own personal watch list as well. Uh, same. It was a couple of weeks ago. I, I wrote them down and I think I even tweeted at you guys. I added one or two. Mm-hmm. I don't remember off the top which ones I did, but that was great. And I loved Kevin's final monologue from my my beloved Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a, a fitting end to the series, I think. And a good way to, I don't know, close out one chapter of Seeing and Believing, even though we're we're not really done or gone necessarily. We've just changed into a slightly different form. No, and I mean, I... I have friends and acquaintances whose substacks I subscribe to out of somewhat obligation, uh, no shade. <laughs> uh, I only have one that I read regularly, but I am looking forward to reading your guys's as it comes out. Thank you. Yeah. I think as of recording, we've had two issues, so plenty of time to build up that habit. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Alien, it was a little interesting for me this week as I was preparing for this. Alien is... A, a masterpiece that was nearly instantly recognized as such. And it's been around for a long time. So mm-hmm. a lot of people have covered it. I don't want to get too in my head about that, but I'm like, how do we, how do we even want to approach it? Like it's <laughs> yeah. very, it is very substantive. Thankfully, I've got a guest who wrote a book on it. I, I definitely want to talk about that at the top. I was like, how do we, how do we want to talk about that? And I think very generally, like several of these, um, Movies who we have people on who are very passionate about what we're covering. Um, I definitely want to hear about the book in a moment. But what was your – tell the listeners about your your first experience with the Alien movies and Alien itself. Was Alien the first one you saw? No. Um, Aliens was the first one that I saw. I'm pretty sure it was just on TNT at the time. And um, – Sigourney Weaver of that era looked a little bit like my mother at the time as well. Um, And so I sort of instantly gravitated towards her as a character. And then I want to say a couple of weeks later, my family rented Alien from the library. We weren't really much of a movie going family. We weren't much of a movie watching family. Um, but occasionally we would do family movie nights and I happened to be scheduled That's a to rad family. Mo- How old oh, were yeah. you? Well, I, w- I actually didn't end up getting to take part in it at the time because I was scheduled to babysit. So they had a family movie night without me. And oh, then no. I know. And I came home and I think it was about 10 PM. Everybody else was getting ready to go to bed. And I knew that they were going to return the DVD to the library at some point. So I said, well, what the heck? I might as well sit down with this movie anyway. 
short of seeing it in the theater, probably the best possible way to watch this movie for the first time because I was at home alone. Nobody else was awake. All the lights were out in my parents' giant house. And I knew the rough beats of the discovery of the alien. And I had heard about the chestburster scene through cultural osmosis. What I didn't know. Such a shame. I didn't know about the Android subplot though. I had no idea that Ash was a robot. And so it came as kind of a shock to me, especially because at the time I was a huge Lord of the Rings fan. So it was difficult to see Bilbo Baggins turn out to be a villain. And by the time the movie was over, I was flipping all of the lights on as I was getting across the house (laughs) to go to bed. Um, So short of seeing it in a theater, probably the best possible way to start out with it. Um, And then I just didn't really think about it for a really long time afterwards. I think the next time I saw it, I would have been in college. So probably a couple years later, I think it was 15 or 16 when I saw Alien for the first time. Um, Wasn't my first R-rated movie, but it was close. Um, We tended to shy away from most R-rated movies unless it was like primarily just violence. And even then we were pretty discerning about what we chose to watch as a family for whatever reason, the alien movies are kind of the one exception to my family's um, aversion towards horror movies. So genre stuff can sneak in there. It really can. Well, and my family's also huge sci-fi nerds. So I grew up watching a lot of sci-fi. Um, didn't really grow up watching a ton of horror, but occasionally something would come in there. And I think the fact that aliens feels a little bit more actiony and a little bit less horror was exactly. probably especially a solid if entry like point. you think about it as Aliens is a cable TV staple. Oh, yeah. And it's a very rah-rah machine guns and explosions. If that's what you think about, like, oh, let's watch the first one. Mm -hmm. You're not really thinking about it as a horror movie. And for a while, I didn't really think about it as a horror movie until I kind of became more of a horror fan and then went, you know what? Like, I know people talk about Alien as, oh, it's both sci-fi and horror, but like, it really is a horror masterpiece. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't think that genre necessarily needs to be mutually exclusive. Like, I think you can get a lot of really interesting layers if you get oh, sci-fi yeah. and horror and that's the I don't know, workplace like, genre drama. stacking in a way that is, is fit, like tends to the story and not just as a gimmick. Sometimes the gimmick stuff is a fun one time watch, but if you, if you link the right genre tropes, it can be an incredible thing. Oh, yeah. it's And I think that's how you really end up with some really interesting surprises as well, because you have the genre convention, you have the tropes, but if you can string those together in an interesting way or in a unique setting the way Ridley Scott did with Alien, I think you really can have something that everybody recognizes, but no one's really seen before. And I'm pretty sure that's part of what ended up leading to the lightning in the bottle of that Alien. That is a great way to put it. Something that is both recognizable and something that nobody had ever seen before. And really, even with all the, the copycats, it that's never really been done in that way since. No, it hasn't. It hasn't been replicated. And I think one of the strengths of the Alien series is that it's all kind of variations on a theme but they're all very substantially different from each other. But I don't think anybody can come really close to touching just how brilliant that first installment is. This is not to say that I don't like the sequels because I love the sequels. They're all my children. But I can't wait to talk about it. So a uh, plug here, I probably mentioned it in the pre-show, but mm-hmm. as some of you guys know, um, we are now making 
when we can. Uh, exclusive content for supporters. So there will be some time in the coming weeks of the publishing of this episode, uh, a bonus episode with Sarah where we talk about her book, mm-hmm. Becoming Alien. And to some degree, it, it won't probably be an extremely long discussion, but all six of the movies, which I still have yet. To, I was trying to get my homework in. Um, I, I, have, I still haven't seen Covenant. Oh, you're well, I would say you're in for a treat. Uh, it's a bit of a polarizing movie, but I'll make I'll do my I, best to make my argument for you to catch up with that one. I'm a fan of polarizing movies, even like and it's Ridley Scott too that right? That one's mm-hmm. Ridley Scott. It I is. think I will like it. Excellent. Okay. Or at least appreciate it. Um briefly, um talk about the framework you use for your book and then we'll get into the first alien. Yeah, absolutely. So um, my book is an examination of all six alien movies through the lens of the theological work of Dr. Catherine Keller. Um, She is a process theologian, and she's written this book called Face of the Deep, A Theology of Becoming, which is a reexamination of the first two verses of Genesis as being a challenge against the doctrine of creation ex nihilo, the idea that everything was created out of nothing. Her argument is that God put everything into relationship with each other. And then it follows that if you deny the interrelated connectedness of everything that has been created, um, then you're denying God's image for the world. And then you're also committing sin. So sin is not violence. Sin is not disobedience. Sin is the denial of the created relationships between beings. And that actually maps really nicely onto the Alien series. And it actually- Kind of perfectly. I know. I felt so fortunate when I was able to make that connection. My husband has an MDiv and he was the one who introduced me to Dr. Keller's work. And so it's partly his fault that this book turned out as good as it did because- The other Josh Larson, right? (laughs) Yes. The other Josh Welch Larson, actually. We both hyphenated, um, which is quite lovely of him. So yeah, no, he introduced me to her work and- the two jive so well with each other. They mesh so well with with each other that they kind of work in harmony. You don't really need the one to understand the other, but I do think that they help clarify each other, especially because I tend to think in science fiction and not in theological terms. So it was a really interesting exercise to write the book and I'm really pleased with it. And I'm, I'm glad that it resonates with people. Yeah. I, uh, I did about half of an MDiv and then I decided that I wanted to go another path, but I, I very much enjoy those things, but I also really do love the, when the like narrative truth, which is why mm-hmm. I really do love these substantive cinema episodes. Yeah, absolutely. So as I was watching it, press play, and I was like, man, is this like one of the greatest openings of all time or the greatest opening of all time for a movie? <laughs> It's pretty incredible, especially because it's so patient. Um, I think you go a full seven or eight minutes before anybody says anything. And then the movie mirrors that at the end. There's almost no dialogue at all in the final 20 minutes as well when Ripley is trying to scuttle the ship and escape and then escape again from the alien. But yeah, Scott is so patient about how he establishes the terms of what's going on, who these characters are, why they're in the deeps of space, what it is that they're doing, um, kind of a lot about their outlook on life and personalities, even just from the setting of the ship, which I love. And um, I don't know if you know this, but 
Scott also was a camera operator on this movie. So he didn't just direct. He also operated the camera. All of those handheld shots um, of characters running through the corridors and then also the the gliding motions throughout the corridors of the Nostromo, those were shot by Ridley Scott himself, um, which I find really fascinating because he just has his fingerprints all over this thing. And it's such a strong vision, especially for a guy who had only made one other movie up until that point before. Yeah, he really knew what he wanted, which is why like, I think about his early career. He He's made incredible movies throughout his whole career, but I especially think about early in the career, I know that Blade Runner didn't do numbers immediately at the box office, but became mm-hmm. like a video hit. But looking back, like after a couple years after the reappraisal of Blade Runner happened, like the guy made Alien and Blade Runner, like why doesn't he have final cut for everything? Like all these movies are finally coming. Okay. They finally gave Ridley Scott final cut and the movies are usually much better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They're up there. I actually don't love the director's cut for Alien, but I don't think Scott does either. Um, Interesting. I, well, Blade yeah. Runner also had several before he got to his quote final cut. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm glad that he kept tinkering with that one because the theatrical cut of Blade Runner is a oh, little yeah. bit rough. That's rough. I, yeah. That was not my preferred version ever. Yeah, but he's an interesting storyteller. I think he's pretty keenly aware of what the audience wants to see and then what his directorial vision is. And sometimes he's willing to compromise on that. Um, I have not seen the um, director's cut of Legend, but I have seen the theatrical cut. And supposedly it was because it tested really poorly amongst audiences. So he cut a good... I don't know, 30 minutes from the movie and then added a completely different score to it um, in the hopes that it would appeal to more broad audiences. And I'm pretty sure that that movie bombed too, but... One of the only bombs of Tom Cruise's career. Yeah, yeah. And a a weird performance of his as well. It's fully committed. I'll give him that. Um, Strange movie, but so visually stylistic. Yeah, that's like a weird one I like. That's like a curious... That's not like... Oh, this movie is great. It's I like it. Like I it's swung for the fences. It's a weird one. Yeah. I like it though because it's got such arresting imagery. And I think that's something that's just a through line for Scott's career. And nothing more arresting, honestly, than the image of the xenomorph kind of coming My out of the goodness. shadows at you. <laughs> yeah. My goodness. Well, I mean, I was just stunned. So I this is a movie I love. I I think of very highly. When I first saw it, I was probably like it was definitely not the first R-rated movie I saw, but for me, my parents were very careful and discerning until they weren't. It was like once <laughs> once they, they opened the door, the floodgates broke, and they had a lot of other stuff on their plate, and it was whatever. I think Speed was my first R-rated movie, and then after oh, that's that, a good they're one. just like, go to the library, get what you want. Like <laughs> We watched Die Hard, we watched The Rock, and all those movies, and they're just like, whatever, try to be careful. <laughs> Actually, gotta- <laughs> now that I think of it, I'm pretty sure my first R-rated movie was a Ridley Scott movie, because it would have been Gladiator. Nice. Another visually arresting film. One that a lot of people who tended to be maybe more conservative were somehow, maybe because it's historical or something, uh, (laughs) more open to. I have problems with the geography. I actually have problems with the script, but it's a very arresting movie. (laughs) But all that to say, like, so when I, I remember, I was probably what, like 14 maybe when I first saw it and I watched it a ton. I loved it. And then... I think I got the, this has had so many releases and I I don't blame them. Mm -hmm. Make money on your good properties. But I think the first time the really nice Blu-ray 
quadrilogy set came out. Mm-hmm. I got it and I watched it a couple more times, watched the different versions, watched the commentaries, but I think it's probably been about, I don't know, seven, eight years since mm-hmm. I've seen it. So it was really nice to kind of come back to and go, man, if I didn't have kids and responsibilities, like this is a movie I feel like I could kind of become re-obsessed with and watch every night for a couple weeks. <laughs> <laughs> That's a dark headspace to be stuck in, honestly. But it's just so, such a beautiful world. Like mm-hmm. everybody involved, um, all the artists who created the set, the designs, the creature, mm-hmm. the practical effects, all of it is just so, so stunning. Yeah, yeah. I mean, H.R. Giger gets a lot of the credit, I think, for the design of the Xenomorph, and rightfully so. Um, But there's just some really fabulous work that's been done both by the set designers and then the artists. So I know that um, H.R. Giger gets a lot of the credit for uh, the design for this movie, and rightfully so, because the Xenomorph is pretty incredible. But um, Chris Foss and Ron Cobb's work, just designing all of the tactile surfaces within the ship, designing the semiotic model of all of the symbols around the ship. You see all of the little designs and squares around the airlocks and near the coffee. Every single one of those little pictograms actually has a specific meaning that they devised for this movie. And then there's a ton of other tiny little details that the art department just sprinkles in. And it's not even just sprinkling in here and there. They kind of flood this movie with it. Um, all of the beer is is labeled with like Whalen Utani's logo. Um, the cigarettes that uh, I just when- saw your latest review. I was like, yeah, I love having such a movie fan, movie fan. Cause usually the people we have on for these, they're obviously movie fans, but I saw your most recent Letterboxd review. Yeah, it was something that cigarettes. I'd never noticed before. Um, the the design for the cigarette label is called Balaji Imperials, and those cigarettes were made up for the movie, and they're named after Balaji Vadejo, who plays the alien. It's such a great touch. Um, and it makes the movie feel so much more lived in than if you had, I don't know, Marlboros or something. Like you exactly. Could, you could spruce up that logo, and it would be fine, but it almost feels a little bit more realistic that this is a very clearly thought out commercial product that has never existed, will never exist. And it's got that personal touch of being a nod to one of the players in the movie who frankly doesn't get enough credit. I I completely agree. And I was looking him up too after I read your review earlier this week. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize <laughs> just his kind of tragic story. That was kind of yeah. rough to see. Uh Died real young, real, Mm -hmm. real young. Yeah, he did. Um, And this was his only movie role. I can't say I blame him for that. That must have been a pretty wild experience. Um, I wish I knew more about him as a person. I've gleaned a little bit just from what he was doing on the set. He was actually a big fan of Giger's because he was an artist and a designer himself. Um, But uh, I don't know much else about his personal life post-Alien, and that's something that I feel like we're really overdue for. I I would love to read more about who he was as a person beyond just being the figure in the suit. That is ripe for a documentary. Absolutely. Um, But just similar to Blade Runner, one of the things that I love the most about Blade Runner is that with uh, hardly any exposition, but instead like lived in world details, it it creates a whole universe. Mm -hmm. And in Alien, I mean, they do go out of the ship to where they get the initial uh, face hugger and it kind of starts the whole thing. Mm -hmm. But I mean, they're mostly just in that ship. 
mm-hmm. and everything that gets the audience to buy in, to care about these people, to worry about them, um, to kind of the the geography of the suspense of where it, where it's all leading to. That's pretty much all they have, mm-hmm. and at every every corner, it seems like there is it's just bursting with life and details as if it's a real world. Like obviously, they're sets, but they are some of the best sets. Yes, yeah, with working switches and everything. I think the strength of Alien is that the movie doesn't care about plot. It's really character based storytelling, and you take these distinct characters played by these incredible actors. The cast on this thing is so stacked. Incredible cast. It's so good. I mean, the fact that we get Yafet Kato, Harry Dean Stanton, um, we get a very young Sigourney Weaver, but we have all of these wonderful actors just playing, and they're literally just playing the part of a character who has no idea what to do. And they know that if they get caught, then they're going to get murdered by this monster. And I think the fact that they had done the work to figure out who their characters were and how they would react in a crisis. And then they didn't care so much about trying to figure out some sort of a plot or a conspiracy about why the alien is there or why the company knows that the alien is there. The fact that they're just focused on these individual character interactions with each other and these individual character reactions to being caught in this situation, I think, does so much more for the story than some elaborate plot would do. Um, And that's part of the reason why I keep coming back to it is everybody's so interesting. You watch the movie and you focus on a different character and every single time it's a slightly different movie just because they're all fully realized people. And I love that so much. I had this thought on my own this time and it was really nice when I went to check out (laughs) your chapter that uh, a lot of the stuff that I was focusing on on this particular viewing, which I still need to actually go back and log that, thinking about it from the crew and not just Ripley, like it's... It feels kind of revolutionary that the protagonists, the people who are kind of getting picked off one by one, they're not the typical thing you would see in like a big sci-fi blockbuster, right? They're not military people. They're not heroes. They're not um, going out explorers, like trying to do this. They're basically just like contractors. (laughs) Yeah. They're blue collar and then more blue collar. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. And like, I love the uh, Yafet Koto and Harry Dean Stanton back and forth, always talking about trying to get their bonuses. Like they are regular folks in this futuristic kind of corporate dystopia world trying to get by and being on the ship, going on this long, dangerous trip. Like that's a good way to make a buck for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And they're kind of stuck with the terms that they have too. Um, there's a moment where Ash, um, the, the science division oh, yeah. on the yep. ship has to remind Yafet Kodo's character that if you don't go and investigate this signal, then you're going to lose, like you're going to forfeit all of the profit, not just the bonus shares, but your entire salary. And that's the only thing that can get him to um, agree to go down to the planet in the first place. Man, that was so brutal this time. He, he slapped him with those terms and conditions. They were talking mm-hmm. like, oh, there's there's a really weird sound over there in a beacon. Uh, we're not 
medical. We're not rescue. That's mm-hmm. not our job. We got to keep going. And they're like, well, actually. Yeah, Parker says, I want to go home and party. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The the terms and conditions in subsection, blah, blah, blah. Like, they're like nowadays, we just go accept, accept, accept. They mm-hmm. basically, they's like, well, actually, it says if there's this kind of beacon and you don't go do it, you forfeit all of your money, period, not just any potential bonuses. So mm-hmm. you will get nothing if you don't go yeah. and risk your life. <laughs> risk your life even more for additional profit for the company, which you're not going to see. Not because you, not just because you're dead, but also because you're dead. <laughs> yeah. the And not that Alien is about workers' rights, but just thinking about all the talks of workers' rights, unionization, fair wages, cost of living, all these things now – Having not seen it in almost a decade, I was like, wow, like this is really deeply there. Like you could watch the whole movie through the lens of like the lower, the lower class folks trying to make it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's one of the strengths of the movie too, is that whatever reading or background you bring to it, it's going to give a little bit more of that back to you. So if you're viewing it through a class conscious lens, then you're going to see that reading really strongly. If you're viewing it through a feminist lens, then you're going to definitely get that view as well. If you're viewing it through a lens of, um, I'm interested in exploring the problem of evil, then of course you're going to get something substantial out of it as well. And I think all of those things don't have to be in conflict or even tension with each other. I think a lot of them come back to the idea that the characters who live on this ship are living in an exploitative system. And it's exploitative primarily because they have been told that they're not worth anything more than what they've contracted for. And what they've contracted for may not necessarily even be a living wage. Um, And that means that the company is going to treat them as less than human, which is effectively, if we go back to my the topic of my book, that's effectively sin. And then yep. the consequences of that are that it's going to keep spiraling outward into cycles of harm until somebody else can break through and get out of that system entirely. So I'm curious, you love these movies, mm-hmm. you wrote a book on it. Well, actually first, did you kind of pitch them or did they come to you because they knew you were interested in Alien? How did that briefly initially go? It started um, like all good ventures do, which is I made a dumb post on the internet about being willing to talk about religion and science fiction for 20 minutes unprompted and without any preparation. Nice. And then my editor, um, Elijah Davidson, uh, reached out to me and called my bluff on it and said, we have this series, we'd love for you to write about it. Would you be potentially interested in letting us know what you'd be interested in writing about. And so I took some time to think about it and knew that I wanted to write something about sci-fi and religion and theology, circled a couple of ideas. And then um, I, I ended up going to see Alien at Chicago's Music Box Theater shortly before I knew that I needed to get a pitch in. And that's what kind of solidified the idea for me was this movie was perfect for this reading and an exploration of evil. So um, I guess I'm not sure which came first, the alien or the egg, but in this <laughs> case, nice. thank you. Um, in this case, it was kind of a, there was a confluence of really good and interesting ideas floating around. And then somebody um, was willing to reach out to me and ask if, um, 
there was anything that I'd be interested in writing about and then helped me to nurture that idea. So um, many thanks to Elijah Davidson and Cutter Calloway for editing the book. They were the ones who really helped nurture it towards completion. I don't know him personally, but I know his work and I, a lot of the projects he's attached to I've uh, enjoyed very much. So shout out to Elijah. Yeah, he's a great editor. So when did the the feminist angle, so you have you have sin, you have theology or the process theology becoming, when did the, the feminism layer get onto that as well for you? Oh, for me, it was long before. Um, pretty early on, um, probably I, w- I wouldn't have been as consciously aware of it when I first watched the alien movies in high school. And when I first yeah, when watched you're a them, teenager, probably not. Yeah. I mean, on, to some degree, aliens I think so. is very, I mean, it's, it's, both it's very, very overt. exciting, but it's like, she's a mother, get it? <laughs> yeah. It's very overt. And I think at that time I needed a story like that where there was an action hero who was a woman, but I wasn't thinking about the significance of that by any stretch. Um, I didn't come to the other alien movies until a little bit later in life. I think I saw the quadrilogy for the first time, probably in college. Um, a and right- wild experience if oh, you... Yeah. In a short amount of time, watch them all back to back to back. I ended up bailing on Alien Resurrection pretty early on at that point, too, because there was one specific gross out death that I just could not handle. And I was watching it alone and I I didn't want to deal with it. I think I've only seen that once. I, I saw I saw 30, 20, 30 minutes here and there on TV back in the day all the time. And then when I watched the quadrilogy box set, mm. I think that was maybe the only time I watched it all the way through because it's. It's a fine, weird, silly movie. Um, I am at some point will go back for like looking at it next to your book, but it's probably my least favorite of them all at the end of the day, I would imagine. It's my least favorite to watch, but it's one of my favorites to think about because it's just going all out there with the ideas. Um, it's it's sicko mode alien, I think. <laughs> I, do, I do love that. And I just recently... Rewatched three because the blank check fellas are doing Fincher. Mm-hmm. And I was, I always liked it. Like, I was like, people hate on this too hard. But the last time I watched it, I was like, this rules actually. Yeah. I think three's been going through quite a bit of a critical reappraisal in the last, I don't know, five, six years or so. Um, and actually, that might be my real entry point into Alien as being a feminist series because I wrote about Alien 3 for Brightwall Dark Room in. I think summer of 2018, um, specifically about how Alien 3 is the most overtly feminist and the most overtly conscious of the horrors that uh, can come from existing in a female body. And reading that movie through that lens, I think, made me appreciate the movie a little bit more. I don't think Alien 3 is a very fun movie to watch by any stretch, no, but I, would not I say love that. it. Yeah. But it, it's phenomenal. I And I think I, I completely agree with mm-hmm. everything you just said. And I also think that if you're interested in the the spiritual question of the origin of evil and the the problem of evil, the potential solutions to living in a fallen world, mm-hmm. I think that Alien 3 is also maybe the most, I mean, maybe the first one, but I think Alien 3 is the most interesting, explicit one to kind of engage with, like specifically what the movie puts out there, not yeah, what you can- put into it. Yeah, it kind of makes all of the subtext text in a way that I personally like. I know not a lot of people cared for when but it first came out. But in an artful way, like it's were... not B 
beating you over the head. I don't think it was beating you over the head either, but it's, it is kind yeah. of all that it does the genre thing of it's artful, but it also says it, but it also doesn't feel like it's clumsy. Yeah, no, there's some good allusions to, I think, other movies ahead of it, too, that the movie's really smart about as well. Um, there are sequences that feel like they've been ripped straight from um, Carl Theodore Dreyer's uh, The Passion of Joan of Arc. Totally. And Alien 3 is pretty pretty bold about quoting them, and um, I think it's a stronger movie for it. Is it subtle? No. no. Is it good? Yes. Is it fun to watch? Absolutely not. <laughs> Pretty dark. Mm-hmm. Anyway, back to Alien. Um, yeah. Where were we going with it? Yeah, j- j- the feminist lens. I'm mm-hmm. Because it is a, especially the first four, very, um, Sigourney Weaver is the center of all these movies, which actually I'm hoping, uh, it sucks. You talked about back in the day when you first saw it, how culturally pervasive all this stuff was. And you knew, you knew about the chest burster already. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a bummer. I, I hope to, when I show my boys, these movies one day that I can, they will, it will be as fresh as possible. Mm, yeah. I mean, I think the strength of that scene is that it's scary. Even if you know what's coming, it's almost worse if you know what's coming. So I love so much. I mean, it, if you're a movie person, like everybody knows that he R- Ridley Scott only like only the guy who had the prosthetic in him, John Hurt, yeah, John Hurt, and one other person I think on set knew what was about to happen. Mm-hmm. Everybody who is reacting in terror to this alien bursting out of his chest is like seeing this surreal thing happen to their coworker in real time. Yeah. Yeah. Like they knew something was up. They knew that the set had to be redressed. They knew that something bad was going to happen to John Hurt because he was kind of uh, sealed into the table to allow for the prosthetic. Um, But none of them knew quite the intensity that they were going to be filming at. Um, I think there are rumors about the blood splashing on Veronica Cartwright being like, something that she wasn't expecting. And that was the case for the first shot. I'm not sure that the first shot actually makes it into the final movie, like in all cases. Yeah, I'm not sure, but yeah, they, but they do harness like the, a very strong element of surprise and shock. And the shock is very genuine. Um, And I think it stays that way. Even 44 years later. Um, I'd say so. 54 I, years later. I oh was not gosh. watching it in ideal circumstances and it's still, it's, that's a tense one. It's, it's an upsetting scene to watch. I still don't like watching it. And I've seen these movies so many times. Um, and I think a lot of that is really Scott's not going to lie to you about how much this hurts for John Hurt's character. And he's also not going to lie to you about how shocking it is for everybody else. And um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's an upsetting sequence. It's one that I don't think I spend very much time on in the book because so many people have written about it to such effect um, that I wasn't entirely sure that I needed to say anything else more about it. But it's also that kind of sequence where it grabs you and you have to talk about it because sure. it's the chest burster sequence from Alien too. Yeah. And it's, I think that it's so interesting if you're looking at it like, and I don't really like doing this exactly as a viewer. Mm. If I ever think about like any of my own creative aspirations, I sometimes use this lens, but just the math of what they actually show you, how much time, the amount of 
full on, let me give it to you scare, like the chest burster or the scene where you you see the alien and like fully mm-hmm. and it's it's making the face at her. There, there's not a whole lot of explicit horrific imagery, yet mm-hmm. there is a palpable sense of dread nearly the entire time, and it's it's an extremely effective movie. Yeah, it is. Scott sells the terror. I think all of the actors managed to sell that too, especially Veronica Cartwright. Um, I don't think I appreciated her enough the first time I saw this movie, the first couple of times I saw this movie. Um, She plays Lambert and she's the other woman on board the Nostromo who says like, let's get out of here. The moment things start to get scary when they're on the planet investigating the signal. And she's the one who says very normal reaction. (laughs) Yeah. And she says that she likes griping when somebody calls her on the fact that she's griping. And um, she's the one who shows a lot of her fear and terror and is the one who's suggests the idea to scuttle the ship and and take their chances in the shuttle. I think she's probably the smartest person on board the ship because she knows when it's time to cut her losses. And she also knows that she's fighting a losing battle. Very pragmatic. Yeah. And I think that's hard to do when you're also playing terrified. And Cartwright does a really good job of selling both the terror and the rational thought that's behind it. And I think that almost makes the actual terror even scarier because she's clearly processed what's going on and she knows what's happening. She's not just reacting in, um, I don't know. She's not a screen straight queen. Panic. Yeah. She's not like your typical like uh, young woman there to scream. <laughs> mm-hmm, exactly. Like the screaming is there for a purpose and it's because she's genuinely thought about how scary all of this is. Yeah. So I meant to say earlier with the whole cultural um just how everything is known already. Mm. One of the cool things I think, and I, I'm really trying to put myself in the headspace when I was watching it earlier, that audiences didn't know who the main character was. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of these other guys were big character actors. Like there was not, like we know, oh, Sigourney Weaver, she's the star of the alien movies now. But when the movie came out, it's like she wasn't a nobody. But this wasn't like, oh, this is a Sigourney Weaver vehicle. It's like, this is a an ensemble. Yeah. Like Tom Skerritt gets top billing. And I think most people would have assumed that he was the main character of the movie. Yeah, he's like the the strong, rugged guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the captain who knows. I don't think he really knows what to do. He's mostly just playing no. things by the book. Well, it's um, other than when he's like, hey, let's let this infected guy back into the ship. Yeah. Partly to save his own skin, I think. And Completely I, I'm glad that the movie doesn't skin. underline that. It's just something where if you're scared and you want to get back on the ship, you're going to use every avenue you possibly can to do it, even if it involves breaking quarantine rules. Well, I mean, you could have left, left John Hurt there, mm-hmm. but they're like, He's got this thing on his face. Let's bring him into the ship. Ripley's like, eh, no, we're not going to do that. Sorry. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I don't know that I would have done the same thing as Ripley in this situation necessarily. I prob- I'm, I'm not sure if I would have done what she would have done or if I would have been more on the side of Lambert or Dallas or, or any of the other characters. Um, and I think... I don't know. It makes the characters feel a lot more believable because they all have those different reactions to this situation. And they're all just trying their best in a situation that's not really the best for them. 
And then sometimes they just go off and and wander off. And I think it speaks to the strength of this movie as being a more character-based movie than a plot-based movie, that we still get those character beats. We get Ripley drinking her coffee before she tries decoding this signal. We get Dallas off in the shuttle listening to Mozart while he's trying to unwind. So cinematic. I love it. Oh, yeah. Everybody changed smoking. smoking in space. I love it so much. Um, yeah, I, I'm not a smoker. This movie makes smoking look really cool, actually, uh, as do mo- most Ridley Scott movies. I understand why the tobacco industry tried to get it in movies, and I understand why health people try to get it out. But mm-hmm. it's just a fact that smoking looks incredible on the screen. And it adds to some good and interesting textures and environments within this movie, too. Like, you don't get the um, the shield over the eggs without that kind of smoke effect. And you also don't get the atmosphere of the Nostromo. I feel like I can smell that ship because everyone's chain smoking constantly throughout. Oh, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just good environment, good atmosphere, all feeling like it leads to a better understanding of who these characters are. All the way down to the dippy bird on the dining room table. Like that's that's a something that feels like such an eccentric 1970s thing to do or to have on your table. In and your spaceship? <laughs> in your spaceship. I don't know how the thing withstands the pull of gravity, but it doesn't really matter all that much doesn't because matter. it's there. And it kind of speaks to the cyclical nature of what this kind of story is going to eventually end up being. This movie is being um more character than plot. And we were- each of the people, as they get picked off, it isn't just faceless people or caricatures. It's like it's not like mm-hmm. oh the the lady or the black guy or the old veteran. Like it's mm-hmm. not it's not just that. No, it's not. And I think a lot of that speaks to the strength of the work that Ridley Scott did with his actors for them to be able to understand their characters and kind of get in that headspace. And then also not really be all that interested in questions about plot. I think the plot for this movie is very secondary. All you need to know is there was a signal and now there's an alien and now the alien is picking off all of the characters on board of this ship. So. There was kind of a a bit of a um, disconnect at one point between Scott and the actors about what they were going to do in terms of how their characters would react to the reality of this monster and the reality of the evil that they're, they're dealing with. And Ridley Scott says that he just looked at them and said, your motivation, because they were asking about motivation, your motivation is that if that thing gets you, you're dead. So you're going to run (laughs) Um, and now let's go play. And I appreciate this movie as the ability for these characters to have the chance to play with how different people would react to the reality of this kind of evil. So we have Yafet Koto as Parker being adamantly raging against you know, the fact that death is coming for him. So much so that Yafet Koto kept trying to get around um, his character's death. And he even tried to get Ridley Scott to rewrite the script a little bit so that he could I, survive. <laughs> I love that story so much. And I mean, Ridley Scott now doesn't suffer fools. I can't imagine he did much as a younger man, but I could see, <laughs> I would love to be a fly on that wall for the conversation. Oh, yeah. I'm pretty sure he actually started avoiding Yafet Kodo when he came to work in the morning because (laughs) 
Yafit would just stand by the entrance and then try to accost Ridley with, what do I do now? Like, I'm going to kill this thing. You're going to let me kill this thing, right? So, um, which is just such a great story from the set. But I think it also speaks to the strength of Yafit Koto's connection with his character and then how that connection and care kind of bleeds through onto the rest of the screen. And we get that with a lot of the other actors and characters within this movie as well. So you have Veronica Cartwright doing an incredible job as Lambert being someone who is just so terrified of everything that's happening to her. And she recognizes that she's a character who is going to have a pessimistic outlook on life. She says that she likes griping. She says that she wants to get out of here as soon as she senses that there's any form of danger at all. And that's very just, pragmatic and, and smart and maybe could have helped. Uh, yeah, it definitely could have. And Ripley, I think, is also a pragmatic character, too, in that she behaves by the book and she operates based on how the company has said that they should behave when certain circumstances arrive. Whereas Dallas, who is ostensibly the captain and, you know, the arbiter of order aboard this ship, doesn't necessarily keep order, also tends to violate those rules when they're going to serve him. He, he brings John Hurt's character, Kane, back on board and violates quarantine in the process. And that's a very real and human reaction to the unknown, to the reality of evil, to not really even being sure what to do. And I like that all seven of these characters, including Ash, who isn't really human, but still behaves like one for a good chunk of the runtime of the movie. It's interesting to see all of them react in very different ways to the reality of evil and then have to reckon with that reaction and then with their reality as as a result of that. And it's it's so wonderful that ostensibly in a blockbuster horror sci-fi that's part creature feature and part slasher essentially that there is all of this depth of humanity and Mm -hmm. you can talk about the problem of evil you can talk about uh rampant capitalism you can talk about the plight of women in Mm -hmm. a society that is not built for them to thrive you can talk about all these things if you want to it's also just a, a thrilling time at the movies and i i'm so jealous of your viewing experience. I've had that a number of times where whether I'm up late or I'm up early and I'm the only one in the house and I either have headphones on or I can kind of go away and just fully be engaged, dark room, giant screen. And I I imagine that was quite an experience. Yeah, it definitely was. Um, It's special and it's something that I feel like I'm always going to remember and I'm I'm kind of chasing that feeling, you know, I want to see something new every time I watch something. Um, And I want to be reminded of my own humanity and of other people's humanity in the process as well. And I think that's really one of the strengths of horror as a genre in particular, because it does remind you that you are an embodied human being. You get that fear reaction when something is made really, really well and you, you feel that. And it's also a relatively safe space to process a lot of those really dark emotions. And that's one of the things that I love about Alien, both the movie and then also as a series, is that this is a series that isn't afraid to delve into the darkness of the reality that there is evil. Now that you know that it's there, what are you going to do about it? Now that you've done something about it and things have gotten worse, do you keep going or do you just retreat into yourself? And that's kind of a beautiful thing and a beautiful exploration, so much so that 
I like that the movie is willing to go into those deeper, darker places rather than just kind of paddling around on the surface. Yeah, no, when we had uh, Josh Larson on talking about his book, Fear Not, some folks say, oh, like, why would you want to engage with a horror movie? But a lot of times they, they use Philippians 4.8 to do that when mm-hmm. the heart of that passage is um, be people of the truth. And the truth is that there is evil, there is fallenness. Sometimes we are in danger and there are things we fear and those things are worth considering, uncovering and engaging with. And sometimes it's pretty cool that you can engage through them uh, through a very entertaining story. 100%. Yeah. What would you say to a listener who is curious, is kind of excited or interested that there are these themes potentially in mm-hmm. movies where aliens eviscerate people in a number of different ways, but mm-hmm. is maybe uh, hesitant to watch that for themselves or maybe is trying to sell a friend on it? What would What would your soft pitch be for maybe the more squeamish or sensitive person to consider stuff like the R-rated horror where people <laughs> get uh, dispatched uh, creatively is not for everybody, but what might a soft pitch be for somebody who is potentially open for that? I would say this movie is probably for you if you are interested and curious about the nature and reality of evil in a careful and thoughtful way that isn't going to sugarcoat that reality for you. Um, If that messiness is not something for you, I wouldn't try to sell you on it necessarily. Agreed. Complete agree. I'm not saying get your softest sensitive friend and be like, watch this alien tear these people up. And for some people, it's a one and done movie too. And that's totally okay as well. Um, It's not something that I would force somebody to watch again if they weren't interested in either. But it is a movie that I think rewards a plurality of perspectives and a variety of different walks of life. And I think whatever you bring to this movie, it's going to give you back in some really interesting and surprising ways. And so if you're interested in being surprised by a meditation on the nature and reality of evil, that is also just a really beautifully well-crafted movie, then this movie might be the one for you. I love it. Um, okay, Substance shout out, Sarah. What have what have you been watching? What have you been reading? What have you been listening to? What are some things that maybe give us some for spooky season or otherwise? What are some things that you have been enjoying or edified by lately? Mm, yeah, so um, pretty recently I got the chance to see um, The Night of the Hunter on the big screen. And I'd seen this movie before and I liked it, but this time around I loved it largely because of its gothic atmosphere. It's This is the perfect movie for spooky season, even though it's not necessarily classified specifically as horror. Although the premise is pretty horrifying. Um, in this movie, a preacher um, finds widows who he thinks has money and marries them and murders them for their money. And in the throughout the course of the film, Um, he comes across a widow with two young children who happen to know where the money that their father hid is before their father passed away. And it turns into a thriller and then a chase movie in which this false preacher chases these children across the American South until they're able to find refuge. Um, That sounds dark. 
And it is because there are children who get menaced um, throughout the course of the film. It's filmed in kind of a, a German expressionist style. So a lot of very deep, dark shadows and beautiful silhouettes. Um, and like we've been talking about with Alien, this is a movie that is interested in the nature of truth in all of its ugly forms and all of its beautiful forms. And it takes the song Leaning on the Everlasting Arms and flips it on its head in a way that I find both terrifying and gorgeous. Um, there's a sequence late in the movie where that hymn gets sung in harmony in a way that I don't think I'm ever really fully going to be able to shake either the song itself or the imagery that accompanies it. We'll just say that there's a there's a character out in a garden with nefarious intent and another character with a shotgun on her knees. And that shot is one of my all-time favorites in all of cinema. And I think it's a really fitting one, both for spooky season and then also something that I found both really disturbing and really encouraging at the exact same time. And I bet that would make for a heck of a, a, a movie theater experience. It definitely was. I got the chance to see it on film um, at the Gene Siskel Film Center here in Chicago. And if you get the chance to see it on the big screen, now's really the time to do it. It, it feels like a fall movie. Man, I'm not right next door, but I'm not too far away here in Kansas City. Mm -hmm. Every time I see music theater or was it music box theater. Music box theater. Every time yeah. the music box, a couple other theaters I follow, I have a bunch of Chicago friends. I'm like, man, I should go up to Chicago for like plan trips around festivals and, and screenings. It's uh, you guys seem to have quite the culture down there. We definitely do. Um, at the time that we're recording this, the Chicago International Film Festival is kicking off tonight. I unfortunately will not be able to attend this year, um, but there's a really good lineup and I'm going to be keeping a close eye on everything that comes out of it because I'm pretty excited about some of those movies. So I guess I can't call it a shout out because I haven't seen it yet, but I'm really looking forward to Hayao Miyazaki's The Boy and the Heron. My Everything I've heard about it goodness. sounds wonderful. I'm so glad he's making movies again. Uh, yeah, I am too. Well, that makes up for some of the uh, deleted shout outs <laughs> that we'll never get to. Sorry about that, everybody. Um, All good. Well, actually, Sarah, so I will have a link to your uh, newly transitioned Substack mm -hmm. and your book, Becoming Alien. Is there anything else that you would like to direct folks to? Where can, where can folks find you? Um, it's probably easiest to just find me at dodgyboffin.com. That's D-O-D-G-Y-B-O-F-F-I-N. There's links to the social media that I'm on there, um, to the Seeing and Believing newsletter if you want another avenue to get there, and then also to my own personal newsletter, which is where you can keep track of all of my writing outside of Seeing and Believing. Excellent. Well, Sarah... Thank you for your time. Sorry about this snafu. No it was great to finally get you on the show. I mean, I I know you've worked with Josh. We've had Kevin on. Mm -hmm. uh, local Kansas City film critic, Abby Olchesi, has uh, talked you up to me uh, the last She's few times. She's a great friend. I, I love her. I just ran into her semi-recently at um, an advanced screening of that uh, the Dracula movie. Oh, but, uh, yeah. Last Voyage, Voyage of the Demeter. Yeah, yep. it was not great. She was much <laughs> kinder to it in her... Um, local article than I was. It, I felt like it had a lot of potential, but it's always nice to see Abby. I think Last Voyage of the Demeter was sold to me as Alien, but on a boat, and it's Dracula. And it's not that. It's Alien 3, but on a boat, and it's Dracula. Um, and, and that's what worked worse. for me about that movie. <laughs> oh, did you like it? 
I didn't love it. I didn't think it was a very good movie, but as a thought exercise, it was fun. It's wonderful to finally have you. I'm sure our paths will cross again, especially if we ever get substantive cinema going as a, a regular thing. Would, uh, would love to have you back. Thank you for having me. This was wonderful. So that was Sarah Welch Larson. What, what a great time. I had an excellent time talking with her. She's somebody who I have listened to for uh, probably a number of years on her show. Uh, dozens and dozens of hours of her talking about movies. So it was great to get to talk to her about films, uh, especially one that is so close to her heart. Um, if you guys haven't seen Alien yet, I hope we convince you to check it out. It's genuinely... It's it's a perfect movie, and it kind of transcends genre, um, like we talked about. Sci-fi, horror, kind of a, a working-class social commentary as well. And I mean, all in all, like it's it's definitely a little graphic here, but um, I feel like, I don't know how old my kid's going to be when I show it to him, but probably, I, I think I saw this pretty young too, and I, I forget how old Sarah said she was, but... Um, one that you can probably show to your older kids in spooky seasons uh, now or in the future. But anyway, this was a wonderful conversation. Um, if you want to follow Sarah, you can have links in the show notes for her book, Becoming Alien, The Beginning and End of Evil in Science Fiction's Most Idiosyncratic Franchise. It's <laughs> quite a mouthful there, but it's a really good book. And it covers all six films in the Alien franchise, not just the first one. Um, and we will be for our supporters on Patreon dropping an episode soon. I had about a 45 minute conversation or so 40, 45 minute conversation with Sarah about her book and the whole alien franchise where we, we talked about all six films and she convinced me to finally check out the last one that I hadn't been staying away from, but just, I hadn't got around to alien covenant in a while. So I'll be watching that one very soon. Um, so yeah, if you're a Patreon supporter, go check that out. And just a plug there, if you like the substance, if um, thoughtful, curious, engaging conversations on faith, culture, and the arts is something you're interested in, you want to help us keep it going, you can join there for as little as $3 a month, get some exclusive content, get to vote on future shows. So future films, guests, topics, things like that every now and then. Um, our supporters get to vote and influence actual content. So if that's something you want to do, check out the Patreon. Or if monthly support, even if $3 a month, that's just an annoying thing and you want to throw us a couple bucks, you can do that on Cash App at dollar sign the substance pod. Links for our socials, uh, Sarah's, uh, her Substack, letterbox, all that stuff. Check the show notes for that. Follow us, follow her on Letterboxd, check out her Substack, and the Seeing and Believing podcast, uh, formerly Seeing and Believing podcast, is now a Substack. If you want some good, thoughtful film content from a uh, faith perspective, check that out as well. And it won't cost you a thing. Genuinely, one of the biggest ways you can support any show, not just our show, but if you really love a podcast, send it to a friend. If you hear a great episode, whether it's this one or another one from a show you really love, send it to a friend, post it on whatever platform you're on or your stories or your posts or whatever, and just say, hey, I really like this show and here's why. It helps people find great content and it encourages the people who make it. I know uh, editor Dave and myself um, and even a little bit Trevor and Vince. I send them stuff every now and then too uh, when somebody says something really nice about the show and 
and that's very encouraging and it doesn't cost you a cent so and if you haven't yet you can still on spotify apple podcasts wherever you're able to hit the five star button or on apple Podcasts, you can write a sentence or two review that really does help new people find the show so we appreciate each and every one of you who does that extremely I've been your host, Philip Marinello, and we hope to see you back next time on The Substance. And I accidentally third wheeled my priest at the time who was on a date with her husband. <laughs> and I should actually, sorry, I'm going to look that one up so you can cut this yeah. part out. I look should up double check that. Send it to me. Stalker is one that I really want to like. Mm. I've had some pretty unideal uh, viewing scenarios where I've engaged with it. And I really want to, I feel like, in the right headspace, in the right environment, I would like for it to click with me. Mm. It has I've not had that experience yet. I love Solaris, but Stalker was just impenetrable the first time I tried. Yes. Stalker is one of those movies where it genuinely changed my life when I watched it. So I saw Solaris. Um, I think it was a long weekend, went to go see it in the middle of the day, didn't really know what I was in for. And before they played Solaris, they also played a preview for a restoration of Stalker. So I went back and I watched Stalker the very next day. It was a Tarkovsky double feature, had never seen any Tarkovsky before. And the beginning of Stalker is famously very slow and intentionally so. And I was so close to getting up and walking out of the theater right around the 25 minute mark or so. And about 40 minutes in, the movie makes this shift from kind of sepia and black tones to full color and like screaming green color as the characters enter the zone. And at that point, I think I was locked in. And by the end of the movie, I was genuinely in tears. I actually have a stalker tattoo because that's one of those movies that has just kind of like left an imprint on my life in a way that I have a very difficult time articulating, but I love one it of, uh, so one much. One of the quotes or one of the images? Um, it's an image. So it's the um, hex nut with the cloth that's tied around it that they yeah, use yeah. to navigate through the maze. Um, it's tattooed that's on my leg. Very yeah. cool. Mm-hmm. No, that's uh, one that I I know it's a me issue. The same thing with for years I, I banged my head up against David Lynch until I saw the the Art Life documentary. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Bless you. Which kind of unlocked it all for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. David Lynch is one of those guys where I think I need to get back into his stuff. I've seen a, I've seen a few of his, but not enough at this point. Um, was a little baffled by Mulholland Drive. Need to go back on that. I think I bailed on Twin Peaks fairly early, but I know that he is a spiritually meaningful filmmaker for a lot of friends of mine. And so he's one of those guys that I just, I kind of want to get into. Um, Yeah. I watched several of his movies and tried to watch Twin Peaks like three times. And it was all, sometimes I would finish the movie. Sometimes I wouldn't, I'd always get, three to five episodes in a Twin Peaks and then I'd bail. But then when I saw that documentary, it really kind of 
was the key for me. And really, uh, the straight story. I don't know if you've seen that yet. I have not seen it yet. We covered that a year or two ago with uh, Tyler Huckabee. I remember that. Yeah. The straight story along with the documentary. I was like, I get it now. And now Lynch is not my favorite, but like up there. And I love all of his movies that I used to find just baffling. (laughs) I love being able to turn around on something like that. I'm not sure which came first, the alien or the egg. Um, Every other week we talk to somebody. uh, Every other week we cover a topic related to Every other week we cover Lord, I'm not even gonna run that back. Every other week we cover something. <clears throat> good gosh. I'm giving you some good freaking V roll here. <clears throat> <laughs> Links for our socials, uh Sarah's 